Well, I hope you have enjoyed our time in the book of Acts. It's really an amazing story when you stop and think about all the things that it's filled with. So many interesting characters. It's a story that's filled with unexpected twists and turns. There's danger. There's deception. There's redemption. But behind all the interesting people and exciting events... There is a single main character throughout this story. Now, some may look at the book of Acts and feel like that main character is Peter, right? The leader of the disciples, the primary preacher at Pentecost, the man whose life was filled with all kinds of miracles and signs and wonders. We talked last week about how he went and and took a man who was paralyzed and he was healed and he could walk. He went to a woman who had died, and she became alive again. What we see in Peter is he's giving us a a picture of the kingdom, a a kingdom where there is no more sickness or disease. There is no more death, and we're seeing it lived out through the life and ministry of Peter. So maybe, maybe he's the main character. Others might look at Saul, uh, the one who is probably the most prolific writer of the New Testament, the man who was adamantly opposed, seeking to destroy the church, only to become the greatest missionary the church has ever known. So maybe it's Saul. These are certainly some important figures in the story of Acts, but they are not the main character. Neither is Barnabas, or or Timothy, or Philip. The central figure throughout the book of Acts, the the main character of not just this story, but the story of human history, is our sovereign God. He is divinely orchestrating events to fulfill His plan for infinite good. It's a plan that clearly extends well beyond the limits of this life, and yet it is this life where that plan begins to unfold. We began looking at that plan in our study of Acts, in Acts 1-8, when Jesus, speaking to his disciples, said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. What we've been reading in the recent weeks is to see the description of how that plan is unfolding just as Jesus said it would. It's a mission that started with Peter at Pentecost when he spoke to this large audience of Jews and the scripture tells us from every nation. It's a ministry that continues in Jerusalem as he continues to speak to to large audiences who gather there at the temple in Jerusalem. He's joined by other apostles like John who routinely speak and point to the the life and ministry of Jesus Christ as the the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one in whom we have forgiveness of sins. These were Jewish men speaking to a Jewish audience about a Jewish Messiah. And it was a message, make no mistake, that was adamantly opposed by Jewish religious leaders. Leaders like Saul, who who opposed everything about Jesus in anyone who was willing to follow him. With a rage so strong that they were willing to murder, murder with stones, 
beating someone to death simply because they professed faith in Jesus Christ. It was rage like that 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 led to a persecution causing Christians to flee from Jerusalem. And they went to other places outside of Jerusalem, places throughout Judea and Samaria. And everywhere they went, they took the message of the gospel with them. It included people like Philip, a persecuted Christian fleeing from Jerusalem who ends up in Samaria. And while in Samaria, teaching about the person and work of Jesus Christ, ends up leading one of the great spiritual revivals in the early church, right there in Samaria, as a persecuted Christian. And then after Saul encountered the glory of the risen Christ, he too, having believed, having seen it with his own eyes, took the message of the gospel as far north as Damascus. And we know from the Ethiopian eunuch that he would take the message of the gospel as far south as Africa. And so clearly the gospel expands geographically and yet ethnically the audience is mostly the same. This is largely a Jewish movement struggling for acceptance within a Jewish culture. But in chapter 10, that story takes a dramatic turn. God has been fulfilling His Acts 1-8 promise in very intentional ways. Last week we talked about how Peter went to a certain man. That was the word. A certain man named Aeneas. And then we learned that he went to a certain disciple named Tabitha. And then we learned he went to a, a certain tanner named Simon. And the exact same words show up again in our passage this morning when he goes to a certain centurion named Cornelius. God is working in very specific ways through specific disciples to accomplish a divine purpose. And he's about to expand their vision beyond anything they could ask or imagine. He's about to expose a love of God that knows no boundaries. A grace that is greater than anything we could have ever imagined. And my prayer this morning as we look at our passage that He would expand our vision as well. That he might enlarge our view of his unlimited strength, his unending love, his unresting work. Because here's the reality. Even now, even in this very moment, God is continuing to carry out his plan to accomplish infinite good. Now think about that. Even now, in this moment. That Acts 1-8 promise is being fulfilled. And as the story continues, you and I become an important part of how that story unfolds. So as we think about that this morning, let's just take some time before we go into God's Word and put ourselves in this story. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to you this morning. May we not stand disconnected from an historical event that somehow 
took place in the past, but doesn't have anything to do with us. Lord, forgive us for ever coming to the place where that might be our understanding. Instead, I pray we come to a place where we very clearly see that the plan that we have been reading about is a plan that continues to unfold and a story in which we have a part to play. Because as the sovereign God who is orchestrating events in very specific ways through very specific purposes, people to accomplish a, a divine purpose, you are still doing that. You are still at work. And we are your people through whom that work takes place. The promise is being fulfilled. So Lord, may we see that clearly and place ourselves in the story this morning. We ask this in your name. Amen. So if you would, turn to Acts chapter 10. Uh, we'll begin there in verse 1, where we left off last. So Acts chapter 10, verse 1. Notice the language. Now there was a certain man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, gave money or gave alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. I want to pause there because there's a lot of information about Cornelius in these two verses. First, we learn that he's from Caesarea. That's where he lives. If you'll remember, Saul was put on a boat in this city before being shipped off to Tarsus, where he was born and, and raised. Caesarea is a major port city on the Mediterranean Sea, right there on the coast. It was a city that was actually built up by Herod. And the reason he built it up and, and eventually changed its name to be what we know it today as Caesarea was to honor Caesar Augustus, thus the name Caesarea. We actually visited Caesarea when we made our trip to Israel a few years ago. And what's amazing is all the things that were built during that time still remain. There is a huge amphitheater that's beautiful, and it's there today. There is an amazing hippodrome where they would race chariots. It's still there today. It's an incredible place. And one of the reasons it was incredible is because it was the city where the Roman prefect lived. Now, the Roman prefect is like a a vice president to Caesar. He is a delegate who lives and carries out the, the rule and reign of Caesar in a foreign area. He carries out the, the civil, the, the military, uh, and all those responsibilities in that area. Which tells us that there would have been a very heavy Roman presence in this important Roman city. It also explains why Cornelius is there. We learn that he was a centurion. A centurion is a military leader of a 100-man regiment. Centurion. That regiment is a part of six other 100-man uh, regiments that, that complete a cohort. That's what they called a, a cohort, was when these six regiments formed an umbrella called a cohort. And we learn that Cornelius was a part of what was called the Italian cohort. All this goes to say Cornelius was a respected military leader in the Roman army who is living in a very important Roman city. In verse 2, we find out some things about his character. We learn that he was a devout man who 
feared God with all his household, which is an utterly remarkable statement given what we just learned about this man. Here's an accomplished leader who lives and was raised within a Roman world. A world built around the worship of multiple gods. There were temples in every city to any number of gods and goddesses. In fact, right there in Caesarea was a temple to Caesar because he was considered a god by those people at that time. And yet, having grown up in this polytheistic, this multiple gods and goddesses, this world in which he was raised, we learn that Cornelius believed in one true God, the God of Israel. It should be shocking to consider how that would be possible. And we learn that this is not a hidden faith. It was a faith that he was not only devout and personally, but led his family to believe as well. It says that he and his household feared God. In the midst of this world filled with idols, here was a man who feared the Lord. It was a faith, as we learned, that was lived out through his generosity. We see that very much like we saw with Tabitha. Here was a man who was of some means, who was consistently giving money to those in need. And specifically, we learn in our passage that he gave to the Jewish people, the outcasts in this very Roman city in which he lived. We also know that money doesn't solve everyone's problems. And so that's why we learn that this man Cornelius continually prayed. In the midst of a world filled with false idols, Cornelius prayed continually to the one true God. He lived a life of worship through his compassion, through his devotion. We see it lived out in his job. We see it lived out in his marriage. We see it lived out in his family. We see it lived out all within that society. And Cornelius clearly stands out in comparison to what mostly is occurring during this time. And the God to whom he prayed took notice. Look at verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come into him and said to him, Cornelius. And fixing his eyes on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a certain tanner named Simon, who is, whose house is by the sea. And When the angel who was speaking to him had departed, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were in constant attendance upon him. And after he explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. What's interesting, first of all, is that Cornelius is praying during the ninth hour. Ninth hour is about three o'clock in the afternoon. What's interesting about that is the ninth hour was precisely when the sacrifices in Jerusalem would be taking place. So at the very same time, there are sacrifices and worship going on in Jerusalem. Cornelius stops in the middle of his day to do the same through a sacrifice of prayer. 
It's during this time of prayer that he sees a vision. And in this vision, he sees an angel of the Lord very clearly. And this angel calls him by name. He says, Cornelius. He then informs Cornelius that his, his life of worship has been a memorial to God. Now, if you think about a memorial, you need to consider what that means even in our culture today. We see memorials all the time, and they're intended to bring honor to a person or an event. So next week, Grant and I are going to D.C., and we're going to see a lot of memorials, right? Because that's what is uh, in large part there for our country to see and honor people and events that have taken place in our history. So the angel of the Lord is looking at Cornelius and he's saying, your life of worship is a memorial. It, it brings honor to the God to whom you pray, to whom hears your prayers, to whom knows your name. He then gives some very specific instructions about what he wants Cornelius to do. And I want you to notice that in the midst of all that is happening, Cornelius, or the angel never explains why. Maybe even more amazing than that is the fact that Cornelius never asked for an explanation. He simply does what the angel instructs him to do. He orders men and sends them off to Joppa, just, just as the angel described. In Joppa, they will look for a house where a man by the name of Simon, also known as Peter, is staying. It's a house by the sea. Now, Joppa, if you were to look at a map, is directly south from Caesarea, about 30 miles. In that time, it would have been a, a day's journey. But given the time that they got this information, that, that afternoon, they wouldn't arrive until sometime the next day. But Cornelius takes some of his most faithful men to carry out this most important mission, and he sends them on their way. Meanwhile, let's look what's happening in verse 9. And on the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance and he beheld the sky and it opened up. And a certain object, kind of like a, a great sheet, was coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures and, of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him and said, Arise, Peter, kill and, and eat. And Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And a voice again came to him and said a second time, What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times. And then immediately the object was taken up into the sky. So we learn that, that Peter, we've kind of changed scenes now. We've gone from Caesarea, now we're in Joppa, where Peter is staying at Simon the Tanner's house, the house by the sea. He's looking for a place of solitude, so he goes to the roof where he We'll spend some time in prayer. It tells us it's about the sixth hour, which is around noon. So very possibly they're fixing dinner and the smell of dinner is wafting through the house. And if you've ever been hungry and you smell dinner, you know that your mouth starts watering, and your stomach starts gurgling and all you can think about is food, right? <laughs> I want some food. Before Peter was willing to sit down to eat, he made a point to kneel down and pray. 
And during this prayer, it says that Peter fell into a trance. We might call it a daydream. He just kind of was in another place and was seeing something. And in this daydream, he saw the sky open up. And as it opened up, there was this sheet that came down. It points out that it had four corners, very possibly uh, extending north and south and east and west. And when this large sheet comes to the ground, he sees that it's filled with all kinds of of a mixed multitude of animals. We learn that there are birds, there are four-footed creatures, there's reptiles, there's insects. Now, some of those probably fit into the Jewish dietary restrictions established in the law, while others did not. But because they were all mixed together, it made everything unclean. Then Peter heard a voice from heaven that said, Peter, arise. Kill and eat. It's like Peter was probably trying to wrestle with what's going on. I know I'm hungry. I hear this voice. Those are unclean animals. It's coming from heaven. He probably saw this as a divine test. God's testing me in a a moment of weakness to see if I will stand strong in my faith. So he adamantly objects, objects to the invitation to partake in what's considered unclean. After all, Peter knows that those dietary restrictions were established by God to begin with. They were given through the law, spoken by Moses at Mount Sinai. And he would not betray what he knew God had spoken. But those restrictions have a much deeper meaning than just a kosher diet. There was a reason behind the dietary restrictions. And let me give you a clue as to what that might have been. Just listen to this, if you would. It's in Leviticus chapter 20, in verse 24. Now listen closely. He said, Hence I have said to you, this is God speaking, you are to possess their land, and I myself, God, will give it to you to possess it. A land flowing with milk and honey, I am the Lord your God, here's the key, who has separated you from the peoples. Goes on in verse 25 and says, You are, therefore, to make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean, and between the unclean bird and the clean, and you shall not make yourselves detestable by animal or by bird or by anything that creeps on the ground, which I have separated for you as unclean. I want you to notice here how the food restrictions were tied intimately to being set apart from other peoples. That's because food is a table fellowship. In other words, what's on the table directly impacts who's at the table. Do you see that? What's on the table directly impacts who's at the table. God had given these dietary restrictions to set them apart from other peoples. Their table fellowship was to be considered a sacred space. But in response to Peter's objection, he heard the voice of God saying, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. Apparently, it repeats itself Three different times. 
What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. What God has cleansed, Peter, no longer consider unholy. And then just as mysteriously as it appeared, the sheet ascends and disappears back into the sky. I can assure you from Peter's perspective, this makes absolutely no sense. If I'm Peter, I'm probably thinking, man, my stomach's hungry. My mind's playing tricks on me. I have no idea what's going on here. Look how it continues in verse 17. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. Now, I want to pause there because sometimes things are too coincidental to be a coincidence. Right? This is one of those times. Precisely the same time as you would expect the men that Cornelius, is, uh, the men that Cornelius had sent to arrive is when they show up at the gate. But before he ever hears them arrive at the gate, it says Peter is greatly perplexed. Okay, this is one of those words we translate in English that is, uh, um, is, is, is one that just doesn't quite capture the fullness of this. And so let me help you understand a little bit more of how they might have felt. Because the exact same word was mentioned back in Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, if you'll remember, we have the scene of the apostles preaching at the temple. And they're arrested and thrown in jail. Okay, We know that in this particular event, while they were in jail at night, an angel of the Lord appeared. And it released the apostles through locked gates, past guards alert and ready, only to see them show up again at the temple to continue preaching in the same way they had just left off. In that passage, it says the guards were greatly perplexed. Same word. They were thinking in their mind about all that just happened and they were how? How? This makes absolutely no sense. Well, Peter is experiencing the very same emotion there on the rooftop. He's scratching his head. He's wondering, how? How? This doesn't make sense. There is no logical explanation so look at how it continues in verse 19 and while Peter was reflecting on the vision that didn't make sense the spirit said to him behold three men are looking for you but arise go downstairs and accompany them without misgivings for I have sent them myself Peter went down to the men and said behold I am the uh, down to the men and said behold I am the one you're looking for for what is the reason for which you have come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. The Spirit of God speaks to Peter and gives him comfort about these unexpected visitors. And we can understand why, because if the Roman military shows up at your door unannounced, it's usually not good news, right? And so the Spirit of God speaks to Peter and comforts them, tells Peter that he should trust these men. He should have no misgivings. 
And the reason that he should trust these men is because God sent them. But keep in mind, Peter still doesn't have all the answers. He's walking in blind faith at this point. But just like we saw with Cornelius, he followed through with obedience, without hesitation. He was willing to go where God leads, even if he didn't completely understand. All he needed to know was that God was somehow involved. Now, I think we need to just pause there for a moment and consider the magnitude of what just happened. And and consider for a moment how that might apply to us. Maybe we should consider that we don't have to have all the answers in order to faithfully obey. And in fact, maybe it's not even fair to expect our finite minds to understand An infinite God. He's always, I don't know about you, but this is true in my life. He's always doing things that don't make sense to me. But if we believe what we know to be true about him, we have to know that they make perfect sense to him. They may not make any sense to us. But if he is a sovereign God, sovereignly in control of all things, they make Complete sense to him. He sees things that we do not see. He is not restricted by by time and space like we are. In fact, he knew about Cornelius before Cornelius was ever born. Before the creation of the world, he knew that this certain man would be the turning point in Christian history. Because remember, God is the main character of the story. It is God who is sovereignly directing events to accomplish His plan for infinite good. He is expanding Peter's vision to see beyond the limits of his own cultural view. It did not make sense to Peter. But God's grace rarely does. It's often beyond more than we can ask or imagine. His love knows no boundaries, which, get this, is why you and I, because His love knows no boundaries, because His grace is more than we could ask or imagine, it's the very explanation for why you and I are invited to sit at His table and live in eternal fellowship with Him. That doesn't make sense. There is no logical explanation. It struck me this week as I was reading through the Gospel of John. I was in chapter 11 where Caiaphas is making the, play, the, the case for why Jesus needs to be silenced. The reason is because the, all the debates and turmoil that have been created through the life and ministry in Jesus, His miracles, His messages, and, and they said, look, there's only one way that we can solve this issue. We just need to get rid of Him. The Jews were afraid of losing their place of peaceful autonomy in this world. So Caiaphas stands up, and this is what he says. Listen closely. He says, don't you realize... It's better for one man to die than for people, for the people, than for the entire nation to perish. 
it's better for one man to die for the people and for, than for the entire nation to perish. Now, what's even more interesting is the commentary of John following up with this event. And he says this. He says he, speaking of Caiaphas, did not say this on his own. Think sovereign God. He did not say this on his own, but as the high priest at that time, he was led to prophesy, think sovereign God. Led to prophesy that Jesus would in fact die for the entire nation. And not only for the nation, but to bring together and unite all the children of God scattered around the world. <laughs> the prophecy spoken out of the mouth of Caiaphas, who did not even believe that Jesus was the Messiah, is being fulfilled before our very eyes in the story of Acts. And not only that, it is continuing to be fulfilled before our very eyes in our lives today. John says, for as many as receive Him, to as many as believe that He is the Christ, the Savior, the one who sacrificed his life for the forgiveness of sins, for as many as believe, to him they give the right to become children of God. And one day, those children will sit at his table. In fact, this one you need to look at. Go to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation Chapter 19. Revelation is a wonderful book of the Bible because it gives us a picture of things that are yet to come. It tells us how the story will continue and then ultimately be fulfilled. And we read late in that book as it's describing the things that will take place in verse 6 of chapter 19. It says this, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the sound of many waters, the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Oh, hallelujah. For the Lord God, the Almighty, reigns just as He always has. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has been made herself ready. And it was given to her to, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, right, blessed are those. Listen. Who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. That's the day that we should all be longing for. When the promise is fulfilled and we sit at the table of our Savior, living in perfect and undefiled fellowship with Him, for all eternity. We need to expand our vision. Just like Peter. We need to expand our vision. To see beyond the limits. Of this world. And to live for something more. We need to see life. In light of eternity. With lives that 
are memorials. Lives that bring honor and glory to God. Just like we saw with Cornelius. So with that in mind, let me, let me finish up with three challenges that I think come out of our passage this morning that I would encourage you to consider and meditate on this week as you reflect on what we walked through this morning. The first one is this. Let God expand your vision of who He is. Number one. Let God expand your vision of who He is. In order to help you do that, I would encourage you to consider passages like you find in Isaiah. Okay, just listen and tell me if this doesn't expand your vision of who God is. It says in Isaiah 40, verse 21, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the vault of the earth. And its inhabitants, that's you and I, are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. And listen to what he says next about the things that we get so worked up about in our world today. He says, it is he who reduces rulers to nothing and makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely are they planted. Scarcely are they sown. Scarcely have they taken root, but he merely blows on them and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me that I should be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high. You might even do this tonight. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created the stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Grant and I went out on a camping trip the other night. We were outside the city enough to see more stars than you can see inside the city. And I said, Grant, look at all those stars. Our God knows them. Each by name. He goes on and says, because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. I want you to expand the vision of how big your God is. Because if that's how he feels about the stars, what does that say about how he feels about you? Created uniquely in his image. With a love that knows no boundary. With a grace that is beyond what we could ask or imagine. So let me encourage you to read Psalm 40 or Isaiah 40 or Psalm 121. Just spend some time in Psalm 121 this week and expand your vision of who God is. A God who is always able. A God who is eternally awake. A God with limitless power. Expand your vision of who God is. Number two, expand your vision of how God works. And in order to do that, I want you to ask yourself an important question, and it is this. Who's not invited to my table? Who's not invited to my table? 
who's unclean or unworthy to be at my table? Like Peter, do you exclude certain people from God's plan of redemption? And here's the reality. That blanket, that sheet that would descend from heaven should include people from every political party. It should include people from every race, every nation, every religion. There is no one on the face of this earth who is beyond the reach of God's redemptive hand. The love of God knows no boundary. And neither should ours. May we never limit the work of God by excluding certain people based on our personal bias. Let God expand the vision of who He is. Let Him expand the vision of how He works. And then lastly, let Him expand your vision of what He will do. We saw a glimpse of that in Revelation 19. We see in the New Testament that there will be a day. Expand your vision. Let your mind see. There will be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There will be a day when we will feast with our Savior. We have a seat at His table. We have been called into eternal fellowship with Him. There will be a day when all that is wrong will be made right. There will be a day when we won't wonder what He's doing because it will be done. And it will all make sense in the grand understanding of our mighty God who has sovereignly allowed all things to accomplish a purpose of infinite good. That being said, let me encourage you with this. We live this side of heaven and we might not understand all that God is doing. Maybe like Peter, we find ourselves saying, there's no logical explanation. This doesn't make sense. But we don't have to have all the answers in order to faithfully obey. We can trust that he who began a good work is faithful to complete it. Even in the midst of our sorrow, he can bring a peace that has no explanation. Even in the midst of our discouragement, he can bring a hope that lasts for eternity. You don't have to wait until heaven to know that he is near. Because he is with you. And He is for you. And He will never leave you. And He will never forsake you. If the book of Acts teaches us anything, I pray with all my heart that it teaches us the unlimited strength, the boundless love, the unresting work of a sovereign God. And it should help us understand that even now, He's carrying out the plan and the promise that he made to his disciples in Acts 1.8. And it will be fulfilled. And so like we sang and we will sing again 
in those moments when you feel overwhelmed, you can put your trust in Him. He is near to the brokenhearted. He's a very present help in our time of need. I love that passage you put up in Psalm 62. He alone, listen, He alone is our rock and our salvation, our stronghold. And in Him we will not be greatly shaken. Not because we are strong enough, but because He is able. So look to Him. As we sing that song this morning, turn it into your prayer. And let your praise be made known to God. Brian. I don't know about you. There are plenty of times in life when I feel overwhelmed. There are plenty of times in life where I feel greatly shaken. There's plenty of things in this world we don't have answers for. But I pray that this morning you can rest in the assurance of a God who does have all the answers, who's never overwhelmed, never shaken, completely true, and He will fulfill all His promise. Rest in Him. Amen? Have a great day.